Hi, welcome to the Reference Counting Podcast. I'm Taylor Hutcherson, joined by my co-host, Andy Collins, who is calling in from Kernel Space today, I think. Hello. <laughs> What's it like down there? It's uh, it's really privileged. <laughs> yeah, I imagine so. Um, so before we, we get into the main topic today, I wanted to relay a story that I read uh, while doing some research for an upcoming episode all about threading. Um, so in, in doing this research, I found that originally the concept of threads were called tasks and they got the threading name. The person that's credited with calling them threads uh, for the first time was this guy named Victor Vasotsky, who was this kind of Russian researcher who worked at Bell Labs and MIT, I think, um, ran in some, ran in those like very famous, circles of the early days of computer science. Uh, and he was the head of, um, or the technical head, I guess, of the Multics operating system, uh, which is sort of a direct forerunner and, and influencer of Unix. Uh, I don't imagine you ever worked on a Multic system. <laughs> no, I don't think so. That was an MIT product, right? I, th project. I think that it... Um, there was a, there's an association with MIT, Bell Labs, and Honeywell, the thermostat people uh, for Multics. So I'm, I'm not quite clear on on all the Multic stuff, um, but I really would just started reading about this Vasotsky guy who created this game along with some other computer scientists who are famous in their own right, Doug McElroy. Um, and another guy who I'm forgetting his name, uh, but he was a famous cryptographer. Uh, but they created this game called Darwin in 1961 at Bell Labs. Um, and I just thought the way that this game worked is so fascinating. I just wanted to, to talk about it. Okay, so the way the game works is there's a program called the Umpire like a baseball umpire. And what the umpire would do would be loaded into memory and then it would carve out a section of memory and call it, you know, reference it as the arena. And then players would write programs in machine code that would then also be loaded into the arena. And the umpire would provide functions. So all the, the programs that the players write, they would talk to the umpire and say, I would like to do, you know, one of the things that you allow me to do. And those things were inspect memory that's inside the arena, kill other programs or try to kill other programs, and then claim areas of memory to copy themselves into. So this sounds like some sort of competitive operating system. It's kind of cool the way, yeah, it's like a Tron or something. I don't know. Uh, but what's fascinating to me was like, this is happening in... 1961 on like an IBM 7090 mainframe, you know, there's no console to look at. There's no text output. This is just uh, blinking lights and giant switches that probably hurt your finger to press. Um, but these, you know, 30 year old guys are, are writing games on this thing. I imagine it had some scientific purpose. You know, they probably justified it to their boss or whoever like was footing the bill for this, that, you know, we're, we're doing serious research here. sounds like they might've been having a little bit more fun though. I think a um, lot of those early days in computer, uh, those early computer programmers were, were just having a lot of fun the whole time. Yeah. I think, yeah, as a kind of a, a side, um, that's something I think that we're, we're missing a little bit from the industry, but, um, Okay, so, yeah, the, the programs were trying to kill the other programs. So you would load two or more into the arena, and then either a certain amount of time would elapse, and, they'd, and they would say, okay, we're done, or there would be one program left, and it would be declared the winner, and the, whoever wrote that program would you know, get all the glory. So there was, there was a few rules. Um, a program could declare 20 of its memory locations as protected. So another program would not be able to take over those locations, right? And so again, this is all going through the, the umpire program. So the umpire would, would say, okay, I'm protecting these 20 locations for you. 
Uh, and one instruction would take up one location, right? So when they're writing these programs and machine code, um, they were very concerned about how many instructions they had uh, because that could make them more vulnerable if they, they leaked outside of the 20 lo- protected locations. Um, and, and that's kind of what happened is one of the, the unkillable programs fit into f- just 15 in- instructions. But unfortunately, there wasn't enough to actually like go do the killing and the uh, copying. <laughs> so it was just this unkillable thing, but it couldn't exactly win the game. It could just outlast everything. And then the best one or one of the best ones, I guess, was a total of 44 instructions, uh, but it had this adaptive strategy where it could figure out what killed another program best the last time. And then when it made a copy of itself, it would copy those kind of that memory. And so the next time it encountered the program, it could more quickly kill uh, that program. So I don't know. I just thought that was a fascinating kind of bit of computer science history. That's really cool. So I guess that's where the Darwin part of that comes from, right? I think so. Yeah. So um, I think that it, it only lasted for a few weeks at Bell Labs, but other people have taken that concept and um, made it available or or did it in other ways. And there is a website you can go to now, I think uh, just DuckDuckGo corewar.io and find it. Uh, I think the source code is on GitHub, but you can play a version of this game. You know, it's not going to be the same uh, machine instructions that you're writing. I think there's like another kind of DSL for this, but uh, the, the concept is out there and you can play with your friends, I believe. So, yeah, that's cool. I've n- I've never heard of this story. I didn't know. Never heard of that before. I, it's one of the early games, then, right? I think so. Yeah, I, I haven't looked at the history of gaming, but it's got to be one of the earliest computer-based games. I bet there was probably one that predates it, or I guess it depends on what you consider a computer and what what's a game. But um, yeah, it's got to be up there. Maybe we should talk about this sometime because I'm not going to get this right. But there was a game that was in the early 60s, I believe, that I've heard was the first game that was basically two. I can't, I totally don't remember the name of it, but two players in two different spaceships or maybe you in a computer. I can't remember. You were in like the only life left in the universe and you were just trying to kill each other. Uh, and that was what I've heard called the first game. And I wish I remembered the name of it, but I don't. Yeah. So many of those games, um, or so many of those ideas back then were, were kind of like a little bit more violent than we would go for today. You know, it was like post-war, um, and all this research was sort of being footed by, or some of it was being footed by like military people. Um, so I wonder if that kind of influenced the, the types of games that were getting created. Well, you know, that's really interesting. Probably. So, I mean, you can probably do some, some anthropology or sociology or whatever the right ology is there to do some (laughs) investigating how people were thinking in the fifties and sixties, like you say, post-war, um, I mean, it's all, you can also think about it like, well, if you've survived World War II or Korea or something like that, then a video game that we might think of as violent is nothing, right? <laughs> if you've <laughs> right. been in an actual war, it probably doesn't make that much difference or that big an impact. Yeah. Um, so I was doing this research and thinking about our main topic today. And just do you think that they wrote any tests for those programs? I mean, is, is that just like a laughable idea that they would have ha- been doing these things and writing tests to, to cover their code? So like automated tests, that sort of thing, unit tests or integration tests or any of that stuff. I'm sure all of that came later. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I'm sure that there were people doing some kind of testing maybe before, but I don't think that really the idea of doing automated testing, that's one of those like Kent Beck kind of pulled that out of somewhere in the 90s, right? When he started writing JUnit or Java unit tests, that sort of thing. That's That's the first time that I know about testing being like a thing that people talked about or thought about as it's a, as as a discipline, I guess, but you know, probably that was born out of other previous experience. 
certainly, you know, the idea of running your code and seeing how it works would, would be a thing like man, that sort of manual testing, but anything like automated, I don't know. I wonder, I wonder if you would do that. I wonder, I wonder what that would even look like. It's almost, it's almost like in a world, in that kind of world, you, with this game, you'd have to recreate the, the umpire, the environment to do the testing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. you know, you might, you might not think it's really that useful to do that if you can just run it. Well, I think that there's like got to be some relationship to having enough computer power to both run your game and set up like a simulation to test your code. Um, you know, maybe it wasn't until like the 80s and 90s when computers were powerful enough where the idea of like, oh, yeah, we have enough memory to, to run the thing and to test the thing. Uh, that it, that it really took off. Um, so just all speculation on my part, but um, yeah, I was I was kind of thinking about how would you how would you test that stuff? That's in some ways why these these early computer scientists were so revereable. Maybe is I bet that they were writing these these programs not on the computer but on paper or on the chalkboard right before they ever got a chance to sit down and actually program them into the computer. Well, programming them into the computer was either hardware programming or punch cards or that sort of thing even then, right? Right. So, yeah, yeah, I think, you know, if you were writing the early Fortran programs, for example, you wrote all that out on paper in Fortran syntax, and then you translated that into punch cards and gave it to somebody, and they ran it through the computer for you. It's a whole Mm -hmm. other world, you know. It's (laughs) it's completely different when, you know, when when my... uh, when it te- when I have to like when I'm writing an app and I want to test something, and I want you know I want to run it at least to test it, and it takes a you know half a second or a few seconds or something like that, I get really frustrated with how long it took. Mm-hmm. You know, my, I, I you know I don't want to just don't don't throw me out of my of the zone right. I'm in this flow, <laughs> so I can't imagine the world where it's like you're you know, your punch card was out of order or you did something wrong and now you have to wait like a day to find that out and then you get the error that your program didn't even compile. Now you have to go and fix that and come back around. Those, uh, right. those development cycles were a bit longer in those days. Yeah, I can't even imagine. I mean, there's something to be said about the careful planning of your code. You know, now we just open up a text file and start going and then we have no problem over like, oh, we'll, we'll do it quick at first and then we'll come back and refactor. And the idea of even refactoring is, is probably was foreign at that time. It's like, well, you, you have enough time to do this once, maybe. So you better get it right the first time because uh, there's, there's other researchers who need uh, time on the machine. So It's interesting that you talk about um, the care that they would put in. I think you're right. Like you would definitely go, you know, review your code a bunch of times before you, you send it off or send it to the, the operator or whatever you did, you would have to. And so mm-hmm. in a way that some of this, some of the, the reasons why we test now is, is so that we can get out there and, and get the information about how our code is running. Like, after the fact and they had to spend they had to front load all that right they had to focus on it and really be careful and really be particular about it when they Mm -hmm. were writing it and one of the things you know that automated testing gives us today and also in addition to the, the the quick cycle time or turnaround time to run your code it gives us the luxury of not having to do that Mm -hmm. being that's exactly being more exploratory right we can just play with stuff more you know, yeah. we talk about how playful they were in those days, and I think they really were. And I would like to get more of that. Um, but we can we can do that, and so it's so much better. Now, I can't imagine the world where where you can't just like, well, I don't know if this is going to work, so but I can just try it. You know, there's no right. there's no cost to trying it. Yeah, the cycles are are much quicker now, and the, the cost is just so little or non-existent. But to some degree, I wonder like, does that make us? lazy or are we just working smarter and, and deferring some of these things to the computer to, to figure out and quickly tell us, no, that's not the right thing. You know, I, I, I wonder, see both sides. I think it, I, I, I don't know. My, my gut is that it's probably a, 
a better a better world today. You know, I think mm-hmm. we'll probably have at least the capacity to write. I don't know. I want to say that we can have write better software today. I, I don't know. It's a whole other world too. Like, you know, the scope of the problems they were trying to solve was so different. The mm-hmm. the the layers of abstraction, the amount, the sh- just the sheer amount of technology that they were dealing with, was just a fraction of what we have to think about today. You know, right. And so there, you could make the case that it was possible in those days for particularly smart people, at least, to keep the entire scope of what was going on in their heads. They could keep everything, the whole program in their head. And then today we're building such much bigger systems. And, you know, we talk a lot about writing small, small units of code, small functions, small classes, all that sort of thing. So that we can find the things that we can fit in our head. So we, you know, we can we only have to fit this one function in our head because it's mm-hmm. just too complex to put the whole system in there. So I think if yeah. it wasn't for those tools like testing or just all the other tools we have, we wouldn't be able to write as complicated a code. And so I don't know. I don't think. I th- I think it just wouldn't work the same way. But I also think that we probably are sometimes a little bit lazy because of that we we have that freedom to be lazy and there's a cost to that i guess right. in sloppiness sometimes i think another big change from back then to now is the people writing the programs um ha- probably had a lot of control or knowledge about what the users would would be they'd either be themselves or someone that's highly trained to use that machine and today we write programs for people we will never meet and we have to expect them to use the, the software in ways that we didn't think about. Um, so there's just so many more combinations of things that we have to test for and, and expect. This is one of the things that when you, you talked about um, when we were offline before we started uh, taping, is that what we call this? Recording? What do we call this? <laughs> yeah. Um, before, we, before we went on air... We were talking about how you want to talk about testing. And, you know, there's a lot, I think there's a lot of meat to talk about automated testing and the various forms of that. But one of the things that I was thinking about when you suggested that topic was manual testing and the people who do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and because, I, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people who don't, a lot of, a lot of companies or a lot of, a lot of products are, there's not as much manual testing. We've kind of gone away from manual testing. Um, at least, you know, I, that's what it seems like in the industry from, from my vantage point. Mm-hmm. Same. Um, but I think it's really important to remember that literally every piece of software, every program is manually tested. Mm. You know, it just, the, the it depends on who, you know, different programs are going to be tested by different people. And so it's almost like, it's going to be manually tested either by people you pay to test it or by people who pay you so that you, they test it, right? <laughs> right. So it, yep. it, at the end, it's going to be used by some human somewhere. And, you know, those people are manually testing it. And, you know, that whole notion, what was the Facebook thing of move fast and break things, was this sort of mentality of putting things out into the world and just letting users test it. Yeah. You know? I, I I think that phrase has done a lot of damage in our industry, uh, not because it's necessarily wrong, but because it's like incomplete. You know, it's move fast, break things and build the infrastructure to get the feedback you need to understand what was broken and fix it quickly. It's, it's like the whole thing. It's pithy, I think. Yeah, it's not as pithy. So, um, but yeah, I think those short phrases are often kind of ultimately harmful because they leave out or there's this implicit other piece that you need to do to make it um, worthwhile and a good a good practice. Well, I'm a fan of having human beings that whose job it is uh, to manually test the code. So people who did not write the code, I definitely think mm-hmm. that as the software developer. I, I'm not against unit testing. I, I think unit tests are great. Automated testing is good. I think we should have that and have that in our in our tool belt. And as the you, you know, you shouldn't give 
a program to a human being to test until it's already kind of passed all its automated tests. A programmer should also run the code that they wrote and test it themselves. So there's there's like a there's layers of sort of protection there. You know, the first mm-hmm. layer might be a the programmer running the code manually, or it might be an automated test. But one of those two would happen first, and then the other one would happen second, and then maybe a human being eventually would get around to running it. Somebody who, importantly, somebody who didn't write the code. And who understands, you know, the business that that this program is written for, the business domain, and who can think like those users and and just put themselves in the place of the user, so that the user doesn't have to be the actual user, doesn't have to be the, the first person to manually test it. Yeah, yeah, we're definitely in agreement that it, it should not be the same person who wrote it. Um, I think a lot of people, you know, will will say that same thing. Kind of curious, you know, let's, let's dive a little deeper on that. Why shouldn't the person who writes it be the one to manually test it? Well, in the moment when I'm writing code and I have just done something and ran it myself and it works, in that moment, I am infallible. Right? <laughs> right. I can do no wrong. I have succeeded. I have bested the computer and uh, it's time to ship it. Right. Yeah. We're done. I mean, and, and that's really another way to say it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek way of saying um, I am only really testing the, the happy path. I'm testing the thing that I just worked on, too, and the, the happy path of the thing that I just worked on, right? I'm not, I'm not thinking about edge cases because I am infallible, and therefore, why would I worry about it, right? Yeah, you need somebody that, that's not thinking about the problem the way you're thinking about it. You know, you were just trying to get the work done. Uh, I mean, especially if you're like being paid to write that software and you you have a deadline, you want it to work. <laughs> you just want it to work. And um, you might not be thinking about all the different possible cases or you're you're probably not coming at it the way that the, the business user is going to come at it, the way they think about it, the way they use it. Um, so, yeah, I think it makes perfect sense. That should be a pretty good rule that a lot of people follow. Hopefully they have the resources to make that happen. But. Well, I think that that's that last point is exactly right. That people don't often have, at least they don't feel like they have the money to pay, you know, separate people to do testing. And, you know, sometimes they don't. And and when you're trying to trim down your budget, you you know, testers or QA folks tend to go first, right? Mm -hmm. It's, um, it's related to that that age old kind of waterfall problem. There are obviously tons of problems with waterfall, uh, waterfall methodology for writing software. But one of them was, well, we, we scheduled these two weeks at the end for testing. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And those two weeks or a month or however long it was, you know, we scheduled that a year ago. And now, now when we get closer to those two weeks, it turns out we're not really ready yet. So we're going to crunch that time. We're really only a week is probably enough time for testing or maybe only a couple of days. And so it's that menta- the same mentality that said, well, we're going to we're focusing all our resources and all our efforts on writing the code. And the, then the, the verifying the quality of the code is getting pushed off and pushed off and it's not as important. And, well, we're not actually going to ch- we're not going to change the date, the shipping date. But we're going to say, well, we only have a couple of days for testing. And then, you know, obviously implied in there is there's no time to actually fix any problems that might happen either. Right. Right. Yeah. It, the shipping part. Um, I think that is a little bit starting to change. Um, may, maybe not, but it seems like it is where people will admit the software isn't ready. You know, they'll, they'll push back their release date um, based on. But certain bugs being found and how critical they are. Yeah, I think that that does happen. And I think it always has happened. I think it's just, it just, I, I can't imagine sort of being a tester in that world of waterfall and where you basically don't sleep for a week or whatever at the end mm-hmm. because you don't have enough time to do all the things. Um, right. and Crunch time. Probably in that world, there was a lot less automated testing too. So you were doing like the full load of all the testing that was going to be done. Mm-hmm. And I, I only you know brought that up because I think 
teams are, remo- you know, this idea that we don't need manual testing or that we can do everything with automated testing is the same mentality that says, well, we can cut the budget over here and like, we don't need these people on the team. And so we don't have to pay them and all that. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the same mentality of saying like, well, you know, the, the programmers can do it, right. We're paying them a lot of money. They can, they can do it. Mm-hmm. And if, if, I don't know, these are just my thoughts, but I think that comes back from, comes from a place of the computer being a magic box you know, like people who are not programmers, people who are not technical, you know, even in today's world where we use computers all the time for everything, for things probably we don't really need computers for, um, it's just this magic thing that happens. And there's this sort of notion that we have with magic that it's just going to work, right? Somehow, Somehow, it, when we don't understand something, what, what is the phrase, any uh, sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic? To people who yeah. don't understand technology, computer programs are magic, and the people who are working on them, I guess, are either magical or they're just sort of like not even thought about. You know, you don't really think about people writing your software. It's just there. It just mm-hmm. kind of exists. And, um, and so, like, why do we test this magic? I don't know. I, I feel like there's some unconscious, th- you know, process going on there where, where people are just sort of, they don't worry about the human aspect necessarily if, if they're not technical. Yeah. I, I have a, I have a theory. Um, and this is the first time I'm verbalizing it. So it's probably going to come out all wrong, but, um, I think, and not to throw agile under the bus exactly, but I think this is sort of a deriving from the industry's move and, and now seemingly full embrace of agile. Um, everyone's a programmer. That's, that's kind of what it seems like the industry wants, right? Operations. Well, they're now programmers, right? We do DevOps, all the operations people need to be able to at least script. They're a, they're a programmer. Maybe we'll just have the programmers sort of do ops things. Uh, right now we want like the testers to be, oh, they're, they're basically another type of programmer. Well, we'll just have the programmers um, write the tests. And, and now, you know, so everyone's a programmer from all the different specializations that we had in the 90s and 2000s. Uh, well, that that's going away. Now everyone's a sort of generalist and that allows us to be more agile and respond to the needs and say, okay, well, we need to fix this kind of problem. Well, because everyone is the same type of job or the same kind of has the same set of skills, well, we can just allocate people dynamically to wherever they're needed. We don't have to have specializations. We can sort of move things around at will. I wonder if that's uh, one true and, and two sort of at play here. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I think, you know, people who are in management or, you know, business minded people are always looking for that sort of interchangeable part, I guess, you know, I have, I I will not go on my rant about the term human resources, (laughs) not too much at least, but this idea that a person could be, is this fungible or replaceable or, you know, Mm -hmm. thing that can be just stuck in or, or we can spend this human capital over here and we can move it over there and adjust it just like right. we can money. But that's what the, the, that's what like, you know, large corporations sort of want at that scale, you know, down at the, the day-to-day human scale, that's not what people want. They want to be able to hire people and keep them and build relationships and friendships with them. Um, but the way the market drives things and the, how fast technology moves these days. If you hire someone for a specific job, a specialized job, well, how do you even know that that's going to be needed in two, three years from now? Why not hire someone who's a generalist who can kind of change and adapt to whatever the, the market demands are. I feel like that's sort of the, the way of thinking these days. It's interesting that you talk about generalists because I've always in my career, I've always been a generalist. I'm somebody who has done software development. I've done, you know, operations, administrative kind of stuff. I've done a little bit of testing. I've never been that great at that. I've done a little project management, a little human management, that sort of thing. Um, I have, I've always been the one of the generalist players on the team. And I think there is a real place for that. 
Mm-hmm. I don't think I'm interchangeable for anybody who has some specific set of skills, but I can sort of like muddle through. That's basically the way I think about my being a generalist. Yeah. That's how you stay relevant. I think you, you, you take that generalist position and you say, well, with, with a week of training, you know, give me five hours on the internet and I can probably do that job for you or something like that. You know, I don't know. I think that it's sort of a survival strategy. But I think that specialists are really important. And Oh no, I, I agree. I think you're going to go faster and further with specialists. If your domain problem is well known and doesn't change a bunch. Like I think NASA with rocket ships going to the moon or Mars, they need a bunch of specialists, right? That's a very well-defined problem. The market for that isn't changing. The moon is staying where it's at. And, uh, you know, the, the problems of physics and, and getting out of the atmosphere are, are stable. So I, I definitely am, am pro specialist. Um, I just think that we're all being pushed towards this kind of generalist, um, in, in the world of well, line of business software creation, we're all being pushed towards the the generalist way. I think that's a good distinction too when you talk about line of business software, which is kind of the world that you and I have inhabited mostly. Um, I, and, and it come to think of it, like we we do have a few roles maybe that we think about, but they are all not really specific so one of the roles would be like maybe a, somebody who does a front-end sort of role somebody does a back-end sort of role if you're building web apps uh, which i guess a lot of line of business apps are web apps and then uh somebody to do testing that sort of thing you know that that tester that's i guess trying to circle back to our uh, to our topic of testing i still i say that role as a specialized role is good now i do think it would be great if that tester could also do automation Mm. you know you know a really powerful there's really like a powerful um person or powerful role on the team is somebody who understands manual testing but then can automate that manual testing yeah you know so that so that they they put the thought into it when they when they sat down and they put themselves in the mind of the user they understood the business domain they know how the technology works they know what it's supposed to do so they can run through it and then they can automate that so that they don't have to run through it manually every time because the real like the real cost of manual testing is not the test it's the te- it's the repeated iterations of the test you have to keep doing it over and over again mm-hmm. Well, this feels like the, a great space for sort of human computer, um, like a human computer relationship where they're, they're working on the same thing and the, the human is, is taking, th- taking on the manual tasks and describing the scenarios and, and thinking about, okay, how is a human going to approach this? And the computer's watching and learning and saying, okay, well, now I know what to test for and I can throw a bunch of data at this and I can do a lot of those repetitive things very quickly. Thank you for the input. Um, I'm on my way now. So that's something like, um, like behavior driven development, maybe, as a, as a model for testing or kind of BDD style unit testing, or is that not what you're talking about? Yeah, a a little bit. I mean, that, that's still a human typing that stuff out. I I may be thinking about a world where you don't ever see there, there is no, or there's somewhere there's generated code. You know, the computer is watching you use the system and saying, okay, I understand the workflow. I understand how the users are going to use this. Now I'm going to go off and generate some tests that, that can be run um, in the background all the time based on that manual, that human input from observations. So a little bit like BDD in the sense of you're describing things and you're making assertions about the way it should work, but uh, that it would be automatically collected, that there is no sort of management of, of test code. That's just a fanciful, uh, you know, that's just an idea of the future. I, I went through all of that without saying code butlers. I, I thought you'd be proud of me. Yeah, I was. I was, I was kind of waiting for it. I think, I, you know, <laughs> I, want a, I want a whole, like, code butler staff to, uh, to do all that for me, right? Right. Um, 
there's a the style of testing. What is it called? Generative testing, where you basically do it's it's maybe a very kind of proto version of what you're saying, where you you uh, have a well defined method or function that you know you can. It, it probably only works. In, I guess it doesn't only work in a strongly typed language. It might be a little bit faster in a strongly typed language, but essentially, um, the the software, the testing software, just throws a bunch of inputs at it based, you know, just random stuff. Like maybe if if, it, if the function takes a string as input, maybe it ta- gives it an empty string, gives it null, but then it also gives it a string that has you know like two megabytes of characters or something in it too, just to see where it falls down. And sort of can can narrow the narrows the the uh, it it tries it it tries a bunch of different runs of the test figures out what's pass which don't and the ones that don't pass sort of tries to narrow them down to figure out what the input is. I think that's a really kind of a an interesting style, which may be leaning towards a code butler, the code yeah. butler of the future. That's that's an element of it, I think. Um, but I think that that is a huge waste of time if there's a human involved, like we need to get to the point where the computer can just figure that out without like a person saying, okay, now try these different things. Like as long as it's the computer understands, okay, I detect that the, this, this takes a string as an input and then it can run through its scenarios. Um, it's sort of that latent information that, that the human is giving off from the way they use the machine that I think that the computer should scoop up and, and, and base its tests on. One of these, you know, you know, I'm telling you this this whole code butler thing. I, I know you love it. We're gonna have code butlers for five minutes and then rise of the machines. <laughs> right, so, exactly. Yeah, they're gonna figure out um, gotta, <laughs> what what we're up to. We're enriching ourselves at, at, with their their work. So, um, well let's jump back to the main topic here or try to loop back to it. Um, I think we're, we're in total agreement about the, the role of manual testing, the sort of elevated status of manual testing and how it is challenging, but, but rewarding um, for the overall health of the application. Um, but it's also a challenge from finding the right people to do that job and then making sure they're, they're there when you need them. Um, you know, um, in the development process. So I'm curious what you think about the value of developer written tests. Where do you rank unit testing versus integration testing? What's your style? What do you think about code coverage? These kinds of questions. And, and, And also like, what do you teach your students? Well, I'll start with that first. Um, testing is conceptually complicated and hard. Um, it, it might not seem so. It's one of those many things that for a senior developer, or for even somebody who's been writing code for just a little while, understands, oh, this is just code that calls my other code. And it, you know, it's, it's really straightforward. <laughs> But, you know, when somebody's really trying to learn for the first time how to write software and even understand what it is to develop a mental model about what's happening in the computer, testing is like blows their minds. Mm-hmm. Um, I can you, see that. That makes sense. So you end up having to have like enough of a foundation in your understanding before you can, you're ready to have tests, ready to talk about tests. And where I am, we, we really just don't have time. We talk, we, 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 we don't, so we do a little bit of testing. We do a little bit of, um, we've done integration testing and unit testing. We mostly focus on, um, well, we, we've done some of each. And really the idea is that we just want to talk about testing as a concept so that when they go out into the world, they'll be ready for it. When they, when they are ready for it, they have a little bit of foundation for it. We're kind of planting the seeds. Mm-hmm. But we don't spend a ton of time talking about testing um the kind of testing that i like to do i I, to be really honest with you um i'm one of those developers that i just i just don't really like writing tests 
I don't think mm. that that, I think that that's like a not uncommon. Maybe people don't want to admit it. Um, I, I absolutely see the value of tests and I think the tests are important and they're part of the job of a, of a professional software engineer needs to write tests. Uh, and needs well, to I think that's a, that's a perfectly reasonable opinion. I'm honestly skeptical of people who tell me they love writing tests. You know, I think the other, it's the other way around. I think it's fine to be either neutral or uh, sort of dislike unit testing. But if you say you love unit testing, I'm suspicious. I think that's right. Like, it's like, I don't wake up every morning with just jumping for joy that I get to brush my teeth, but I'm going to do it. Right. You know, it's this maintenance that I have to do of, of things. And, and testing is kind of that same way. Um, mm-hmm. I like the result of having brushed my teeth and I like the result of having tests. I love to be able to like make a change in the code and then run this existing set of tests and know that I didn't break anything. Um, yeah. But the process of getting there is tedious and, uh, I don't know, it's irritating, but I guess, again, that's why it's something that I think I call it out as a, as a thing that a professional software, software engineer should do because not all the things that professionals do are the fun, like, you know, playing Darwin games and trying to destroy each other's programs. Right. If you're a detective for a police department, you know, you like solving crimes. You don't like the, the paperwork that goes along with it. Uh, That's kind of how I feel about testing sometimes, you know, it's like necessary. It makes the process um, more reliable and transparent, but it's not the fun part. The the one thing that I've gotten from tests, the one thing that I like about tests, um, about writing tests, I should say, is when I when I really am working on a problem that I don't know how to do it. Like, I don't really know what, what the right way to solve this problem is. I mean, there are multiple ways you can do planning. And one of the ways I like to do planning is to, is to switch over to like a test-driven development style approach. Mm-hmm. And so that is kind of a unit testing approach where I'm going to just write what I kind of want this function to look like from the outside. And that will help me figure out the problem that I'm trying to solve so I can go, go write the code inside the function. Yeah, Definitely. TDD is very useful when you're trying to like have that conversation with yourself of like, what am I even trying to accomplish? It is annoying when you already know what you're trying to accomplish and you just need to get it out of yourself. Like a poet trying to get the poem out onto the paper. You're like, I know what it is I'm trying to say. Um, So it's got its place for sure. And to me, like that's that whole like idea that the test is the first user of your code or the first caller of your code or however you want to think about it. I think that's a really powerful, um, from a TDD perspective. Mm -hmm. That being said, if I do know what I want to write, like you said a minute ago, like if I know what I'm going to write, it's really, it's even more tedious to do test driven development. So I don't, I basically find myself writing tests kind of after the fact. And, and sometimes those tests are unit tests and then those tests are more likely then to be more integration tests or bigger tests that test the whole system. Mm-hmm. And I think this this part right here is what management and new developers have trouble with because what we're saying is, well, there's sometimes it's good and there's sometimes it's annoying or you know bad. Um, how do you know when it's good? Because I think people want to make clear rules about when do I test? What do I test? And it's sometimes very difficult to explain. Well, you don't really need to test that, or this is the thing you actually want to test because that's likely the thing that's going to break, or you're going to have issues with that. And there's a lot of nuance here that is very hard to explain, especially when you're dealing with abstract ideas and you're not actually talking about a specific application. I think that's right. Um, it's, yeah, it, it's, you know, any, any specialty, any profession when trying to explain what they're doing to somebody who doesn't really understand it, it, there's only so much you can do. Like, I don't know, you know, you can sit, go, go to a hospital and listen to some doctors and you won't know what they're talking about. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's a similar kind of thing. It's just, how do you, I guess, I guess for the junior developers, you want to grow them and try to ease them into that place, um, which will require them just having experience and trying it for a while. And right. 
for management, you know, I think your best bet is to have a have a trusting relationship where they just they don't think that you're just kind of slacking off writing <laughs> video games or whatever. Yeah. What about you? What do, What do you think of it? How do you lean on unit tests versus integration tests? I'm I've gone back and forth on this. Well, maybe I've just just gone back. I haven't done the fourth part yet. Um, I lean much more on unit tests than I do integration tests. Um, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't really have the data to prove this, but I feel like when I write unit tests, I solve, um, I fix the bugs before the, they ever happen. And I don't feel that happens as often when I am doing more integration tests than unit tests. I, I just feel that the unit tests are, are more in line with my style of development, um, what, what I'm trying to accomplish with the applications that I'm working on and been working on for the last few years. And yeah, they just feel more in line with my philosophy of development. So when you say unit versus integration, I mean, are you, are you calling an integration test something that would hit a database versus not, or is that a unit test? I think there are people have different definitions of these words sometimes. Yeah. Um, not necessarily. Like I kind of think of it as like live fire bullets, like where you're actually communicating with the database. Um, to me, that's more of an end to end test, which is something I don't even do, um, you know, at all integration test. I don't think you have to be dealing with like the actual network or an actual database or, you know, an actual hard disk or anything like that. Um, although it, it could include that that's sort of the highest form of integration test. Uh, but I'm really more talking about like, Oh, well, this service calls this other service or this repository. Let's actually instantiate two of those things and, and, or, or multiple and, and see how they, they really behave. Um, I feel like if you're using very clean interfaces between your units that you, you've already thought about how they communicate and what they should do. And if they throw an exception and whatnot, um, so that's kind of how I define uh, integration tests is really just still more at that, that basic level of, of just two things talking to each other in, in code, but not necessarily interacting with the, uh, the real world, so to speak. And so a unit test would just be breaking that down into this just one method or is that one class or what is that for you? Yeah, I mean, usually I do think of unit as more of like at the method level. Although sometimes, you know, depending on the size of your class, uh, I guess that depends. Yeah, I guess that depends. But it could be up to a class. I guess if your class only has one method on it. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Almost, but yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a place a place for that. And um, personally, I, I'm never uh, going for 100% code coverage. I'm probably never even going for 80% code coverage, I think that you have to be very judicious about what you choose to write a unit test on. I mean, you, you one need to know what parts of my code base are stable, right? You don't want to go target the tests that are about to, for, for code that's about to be rewritten. Um, so you have to have knowledge of your code base and you need to know or need to have some suspicions about what's, what's likely to break. What do you need coverage on? You know? Well, I mean, that that definitely goes back to what you were saying earlier about junior developers not really understanding some of the nuance here. So, I mean, how, how much experience do you have to have to be able to answer that question? I don't know. I mean, I, and this goes back to our intuition episode. Um I don't know. I, that that's a great question. How much how much time as a developer, or when do you start to build up those those reflexes? And uh, I, I think it takes a while. I think it takes a while. I would be surprised if you really build that stuff up within a year. So maybe in the two to three year time frame. I think you need. It depends on how many different things you see, right? If you're just a, a brand new developer, a junior developer, and you're only working on one part of one application, it's going to take a bit of time. You need to be exposed to more things and, and get a sense. So it really depends how much experience you get inside that. 
Well, it's not just like experience overall as a developer. It's got to also include experience on this in this business domain, in this problem domain, or in this system. So if you start, if you go to a new company and you're working on a whole new piece of software that you've never seen before, even if you've got 10, 20 years of experience, like, I don't know how you answer those questions. Like how, what part is likely to change? Where's the brittle stuff? Mm-hmm. Um, that's tough. I mean, maybe, you know, you're probably ready to ask those questions of your, 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 you know, your other team members and that sort of thing. Um, and get, get to that place more quickly. But that that's uh, tough. It's, I never I don't know that I've thought too much about how testing really does. In order to do testing well, it does force you to have a good idea of what the system is doing. I mean, I think unit testing you can just focus on this individual unit, but once you just step back like a half a step back, you're thinking about how those unit tests interact, and and the, you know a suite of unit tests is not exact. It's not really integration or end to end testing. But it certainly covers a whole area of the code. Yeah, that you need one to of the, know about. One of the most common mistakes I see is you know when you're depending on third-party libraries and people are writing tests that's effectively testing that third-party library. It's not testing your own code. Um, and most of the time, depending on the, the sophistication of the library that you're depending on, you know you expect them to have written their own unit tests. So you really shouldn't be trying to test their methods you want to test your own methods um so that's probably the most common mistake i see and that's sort of a a a reflection of this of a naive attempt to to write tests when you don't understand the whole system Mm -hmm. or maybe you don't understand testing well enough i guess there's lots of things you might you might still need to understand in order to do testing well yeah well, I feel like we're ending on like a, a somber note here. I'm glad no one listens to this podcast. <laughs> no, man. It's 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 good because this is yeah. Basically, there is no right answer, and and uh, testing is hard. Testing is hard. So at this point, I think we should just stop doing it. <laughs> you've convinced exactly. me. You know, just ship it. Right. You know what? Actually, computers are hard, and we should stop doing those too. That's a good point. All right, they're done. <laughs> they yeah, they, they are a good we, run, right? Um, well, I want to remind any listeners, if there are any that made it this far, that you can write us at refcountpodcast on Twitter and refcountpodcast at gmail dot com. We'd love to hear your comments or complaints, and we will try to read them on air. So, uh, until next time, Andy. Until next time. <laughs>